Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? Today, we are going to be talking about reproductive justice with Dr. Alicia Gutierrez Romine. Let's get it. Justice <laughs> for reproduction. Reproduction. Let's do it. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, The Other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Episode 40, Controversy and Reproductive Justice. I feel like always hand in hand in the United States. Gotta have it. Yep. Okay. Well, so who's this person you talk to? So Alicia Gutierrez Romine is one of our board members. <gasps> yes, she is. Yeah. What up, girl? <laughs> and um, she is an amazing professor who recently wrote a book about reproductive justice in Southern California. And why don't I let her introduce herself to our audience? Okay. My name is Alicia Gutierrez Romine, and I'm an assistant professor of history at La Sierra University. My research so far has been on illegal abortion um, in California um, before Roe versus Wade. Um, my research interests are history of medicine, uh, gender and sexuality, race and ethnicity, and uh, my first book just came out. It's called From Back Alley to the Border, Criminal Abortion in California, 1920 to 1969. And that book is based on your dissertation, right? Or it comes from your research? It does. Yes. So it was, um, my dissertation was actually the same title. And then um, that I defended in 2016. So it's been about four years of, you know, revisions and press time and everything like that. So uh, it is based on the dissertation, but it's a little bit different. So as a high school history teacher, I have found teaching reproductive justice really daunting. Really? Because it's it's controversial. There are people that are really concerned about about the topic. People literally protest it on both sides. They do. <laughs> I've never noticed. <laughs> and um, so it's. I think it's really daunting to get into. But then it's also a relatively mature topic for students. Yeah, it would be – it's a tough topic. I mean, I think about, you know, the reproductive sexual education classrooms and you have to be a certain age for even those topics. Mm -hmm. And in some states, they still divide them by gender. Yeah. Good, good luck keeping that going. But <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting. So I'm just really grateful to have Dr. Gutierrez Romine come on and uh, teach me a bit about some of the historical events that led to these major Supreme Court cases that yeah. we are probably all familiar with. And and give me some historical, you know, background um, to go with that. But as always, I asked her, why do you think, you know, you're a professor, you have done the original research on this topic. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that this isn't taught K to 12? Oh, yeah. And what do you think, you know, what do you, what do you think is behind that? What's causing that? And this is what she said. Abortion is controversial and, you know, I don't think it, it should be, but I think 
a lot of people go into um, or, or automatically assume or have assumptions about what abortion is or what it means or the types of people who have it. Um, I think in our culture, it is something that is really hush-hush. People don't talk about it. Um, but you have, you know, between a quarter and a third of all American women are going to have an abortion at some point in their life. So this is something that is pretty common. And so it's unfortunate that it isn't spoken about quite as much as, as it could be. I didn't think I was going to write about abortion. I was interested in medical history, but I wasn't really sure where I was going with that. And it, it wasn't really until I did this project that I had really even considered, oh yeah, like if Roe v. Wade was 1973, then that means abortions were illegal before that. And I'm very much, you know, I was born in the 80s. I'm very much part of this generation that's just kind of taken Roe v. Wade for granted. It's only in the last, you know, 10 years that I've really noticed because, you know, I'm old enough to, to really understand and care about these things that it's been, you know, under assault. Um, and so it wasn't, it was kind of this historical blind spot. Um, in my own radar. And so doing this research, this kind of accidental project, um, it made me come to a, a greater understanding and appreciation of this topic. I think it's not discussed in, in schools because I think the trouble or the difficulty is in finding an age appropriate way to teach this. So I think it's more possible for high school students, but then at that age, you know, you barely have comprehensive sex education in some of these high schools. So how many of you know, how many of these high schools are going to talk about the history of abortion? And so I think a lot of it is, you know, teachers are concerned about what parents are going to say or backlash from parents or, you know, assume there's some kind of pro-abortion agenda in just telling the story. So I think it's probably a, a fear that is preventing it from, from being brought up at all. I was thinking while you were talking about some statistic, I heard that the majority of abortions in America at least were, and I don't know if this is accurate to your research, but were mothers who had already had children and they just didn't want to have more children. And, and it just put a different lens on it rather than these like teenage pregnancies or something. Right. Because that is the perception. And I think that's why there's a little bit of a fear when in, in the research that I did uh, for the time period that I looked at, you know, it was over 80% of the women who had abortions were, were married or, you know, had children or, um, you know, were done. They just wanted to space them out or they were, you know, done with their reproductive years, but it, it was 80% married women. Now I can't speak to the quality of their marriages, you know, in the forties or fifties or anything like that. Um, but these aren't kind of young, naive teenagers who made a mistake and they're trying to get, you know, forget about it or anything like that. And I think I, I actually talk about this in one of the chapters of, of my book is that you have kind of these two perceptions of the types of women who get abortions. And the way that women are kind of cast in that is to make it seem like abortion is a, you know, uh, it's a negative thing. So in the 1920s, one of the, um, kind of characterizations of these women was like selfish new women, right? Um, that, oh, I want to party or I want to do this or that, or I want to have a job or just date. And so I'm having an abortion. 
before it's like this young, naive, seduced woman who, young woman, and, uh, you know, she's coerced into getting the procedure. And that's, that's how these characterizations are, but it doesn't match up with the reality, which was that these are mostly married women who are trying to exercise an iota of reproductive control. So I, I think it's interesting. I, I suggest that maybe it seems, you know, more callous if you have a, uh, a married woman who's kind of doing you know, having an abortion because it makes it seem like, well, there's almost this perception that there are mothers and there are women who have abortions and that it's never the two, the two can never be the same one. And so it's almost like if you have an abortion, you are incapable of being a mother, you're, you know, you're a bad mother or uh, motherhood isn't for you when you could be talking about the same woman at different stages of her life. Uh, who is maybe thrilled to have a child at some point in, in her life, but is not ready at another point. And it's, so it's, I think that is, is another thing that makes it challenging. So it sounds like there's a lot of perceptions out there about women who have abortions. It seems like that's what she's finding. And there's really these like dominating perspectives. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting that they're, that the there's still these perceptions that there's only this type of person that would get an abortion. There's no one size fits all response of like, okay, this this type of thing is okay. This type of thing is okay. Like you deserve an abortion. You don't. It's like the category isn't you or you. Mm-hmm. It's it's a right. It's your right and the reason doesn't matter. Yeah, I think I I might disagree with you there a little bit. I think that it's not really a as black and white of an issue because there are lots of people involved in the conversation. Oh, sure. Like, so I guess I see this as a really tricky gray topic where probably everybody is a different shade of that where you are, you might be like, you know, it's, it's really white or it's really black. And, but I think probably most people are like, it's a darker gray or it's a lighter gray. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I just think when I bring it back to trying to talk about it with kids, Mm. you and I might, I might be able to push back on you a little bit about that. And, and you can still hold to, I might, you might agree with me that it's a little gray, but it still should be a right or something like that. Well, that, and I think it's all about creating the space. So Mm -hmm. I think you as a teacher, you probably do this with other topics of saying, this is a difficult topic. This is what we're going to talk about today. Everyone in this room is going to bring their experience to the table of how mm-hmm. they think about it, and we're going to respect each other. You know, yeah. there's a way as a yeah. teacher you can build a really inclusive culture in your classroom. Bring them to the table as honest as you can because well, it's a think hard topic. Your point there is really awesome because if if our if our government if adults can't find exactly. points to agree, how are we going to get our kids to do that? And I think. I don't know if this is like a cop-out thing, but I, I just want kids to be thoughtful about it. And well, the, I want the, the, the question to be, be in their lives. This is going to be part of the conversation for them in their future. It is a topic that is consistently debated in, in sides of politics. Mm-hmm. They should Always. have an opinion on it. They they should. And, and I want them to be able – and maybe this is me like – 
constantly trying to moderate people. (laughs) But but I want them to be able to hold contradictory ideas at the same time. Mm. And um, it's really hard for a teenager. Really hard for a teenager, really hard for adults, frankly. Yeah, I don't – I'm like not even in that camp. I'm like, nope, doesn't fit. Can't talk about it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so this is to, to this idea of, of shades of gray. This is what Alicia said. Awesome. This research is just fully shades of gray (laughs) and there, there is no kind of black and white in this. And, uh, once you get comfortable with being able to say, I don't know much (laughs) or, you know, it's, it's, this and that and everything in between, the, the more comfortable you get with uncertainty, then it, the easier it is to, to do this. <laughs> so I asked Alicia to weigh in and teach me about this long history sure. that builds up to these major Supreme Court cases. And this is what she said. Awesome. Okay, so we are talking about birth control and abortion and basically uh, legislation that basically makes these things possible in the U.S. So uh, let's start our story in like the 1950s, 1960s, um, kind of roughly 1950s. Um, We'll set the stage a little bit um, because we're talking about things like sex and morals and marriage. Um, So, you know, 1950s, uh, Alfred Kinsey, he just published his studies on sexual behavior in the human male and sexual behavior in the human female. He published these in the late 40s, early 50s. And even though parts of his research have been you know, picked apart since then, what was really useful and uh, I think what's most important about his research was that he's actually trying to study human sexuality and he's bringing these taboo subjects into the fore He's having the scientific community and, you know, the community writ large kind of look at these things or assume that there is something quantifiable or qualitative that can be studied here. So this is kind of an, a novel concept to be able to, to study these things publicly. But in the 1950s and 60s is also when we're kind of having this shift in American culture. You have magazines like Playboy and Cosmo that are coming out. And so it's becoming part of the American mainstream and it's maybe challenging um, or maybe operating in opposition to this kind of nuclear home, kind of baby boom post-war suburban period. Um, But you also have the Cold War. And one of the kind of unique things about the Cold War is this linking of morality to American values and this assumption that Communism would lead to the decaying of American moral fabric, um, that communism was a, uh, a corrupting influence that would ruin American lives. So all of those things are kind of in operation at this time. All of these things are going on and that's kind of our, our context for this period. Now, when we're talking about like the second wave feminist movement I I like to think of it as a a reaction Um, and it's in opposition to something. And so what is that? And so the kind of framing device kind of opposite to that would be the stereotypical 1950s housewife. And most of us are familiar with this idea, right? She has an apron on, she's cleaning the house, her dinner is ready when 
her husband gets home from work. Uh, she's a wife and mother, and she's defined by her marriage, her husband, and the children that she's raising. And so in this post-war period, women are marrying younger, they're having more children uh, than their grandmothers did. They're living, they're living in these suburbs, they're isolated. And it's in this context that Betty Friedan writes The Feminine Mystique. And she published this in 1963. Um, and it was basically the culmination of years and years of study of American homemakers. Uh, for Dan, she had actually graduated from college, uh, Smith College in 1942. She had all of these aspirations for her career. She wanted to be a reporter. And then she got married and she had her first child. She was able to go back to work after having this child, but then she was actually fired when she found out that she was pregnant again. Her employer was not willing to continue to work with her. This is before, you know, we have all of these protections that allow you to have family leave. Um, so after she's fired, she basically reconciles herself to being a housewife. So she's doing the housewife thing. Um, she's staying at home caring for her family, but she's really unhappy. And this wasn't the life that she had envisioned for herself. And she almost felt like there was something wrong with her because she always saw the same kind of image that we see of the happy homemaker who's taking care of the kids. And so she was wondering if other women felt the same way that she did. So she started serving all, they, all these other graduates of Smith College, and she found out that she wasn't alone. And so it's really in her report that kind of makes up the, the corpus of the feministy. And so the book does really well, but I think most significantly is it challenges this idea that women are happy simply being at home. Uh, and it was innovative in the sense that it was encouraging women to find fulfillment outside of the home and that it was okay for them to do that. They didn't have to feel guilty about it. There's this one long quote, I'm not going to read the whole quote or anything like that, but, um, but she's basically saying how a woman's life shrinks to just the confines of her home. And she was wondering, you know, is there something wrong with her because she didn't find happiness while she's waxing the kitchen floor? And it's almost like she feels ashamed that she feels this disillusionment with her life. And why do so many women feel guilty by saying that they feel empty or incomplete if they're at home all day? Um, and then so there is her kind of closing line is I want something more than my husband and my children and my home and kind of convincing women that it's okay to do that. And it's okay to want that. And it doesn't make them any less uh, as women. So this is kind of this opening wedge that, that really gets us to the feminist movement. Now in the 1960s, there are a whole bunch of civil rights movements. The civil rights movement is really an umbrella to explain all of these different groups who are coming together at this moment to challenge the status quo. For Black Americans, they're fighting against segregation. They're fighting against uh, voting restrictions and disenfranchisement. Um, and for you know, Mexican Americans and other Latinos, they are challenging immigration restriction and racism as well. So you have all of these different um, people of color, members of, of disenfranchised groups who are coming together to challenge their status as second-class citizens. And women 
are part of that as well. Women are one of these groups. Um, there's, there's a few different ways that we can kind of think about women's status at this time. I mean, for, for a lot of women, there wasn't an opportunity to like be on their own, uh, in their own right. Uh, it's some people are surprised, you know, like women couldn't get their own credit cards uh, by themselves until like the seventies. And so the, the opportunities that women have at this time, though much more expansive than maybe their grandmothers, they're still limited and they're often defined by some relationship that a woman has with a man, whether that is her husband or her father. So when we're thinking about the women's rights movement, the feminist movement of the 60s, most people, the image that comes to mind is a movement that is largely pioneered and organized by middle-class white women. And these women are demanding important things, but the demands of this kind of mainline feminist movement is not the same as the demands of mostly women of color at the same time. And the feminist movement of the 60s kind of becomes synonymous with demands for access to birth control and abortion, but these are the demands of a specific group of people. And at this time, that's mostly middle-class and upper-class white women who want access to birth control, who want access to abortion. Many non-white women at this time are actually suffering reproductive abuses and violations of their own autonomy under the umbrella of the war on poverty. And under that, the federal government was actually allocating funds to hospitals to basically encourage women to get tubal ligations, to be sterilized in order to limit or control family size. And the most common victims of this were minority women, black women or, or Mexican women. There's a really a significant case that takes place in Los Angeles at this time called Madriga versus Quilligan. And it involves over a hundred uh, Latina women who are mostly Spanish speakers who were sterilized without giving full consent at the Los Angeles USC um, hospital, uh, General, County General Hospital. And this was through federally funded procedures. So for, for white women who want access to birth control, who want access to abortion, those are important demands, but they do not mirror the needs uh, or the demands of minority women who want autonomy, who want to be able to have children that they want without government interference, uh, or at least to not be sterilized because they are poor or on welfare, or they are assumed to be poor or on welfare. So that is different. They are different demands. Collectively, they are, you know, under the this umbrella of a women's rights movement. Um, but what we come to think of most as the women's rights movement is birth control, abortion, things like that. Uh, that doesn't represent the needs and demands of non-white women. It's really interesting hearing you talk about this sort of split with um, this sort of racial divide and what people are asking for. And yet it's the similarity is autonomy, right? And, and mm -hmm. the ability to make your own choices about your body. And there's exploitation on one end by the government. And then there's sort of just like a lack of trust to the, the, you know, white women, the upper class white women. And, but that, but 
it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, autonomy would kind of link those two together. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it just becomes more of, you know, how it's presented. So like, if you look, you know, if you did like a quick Google image search of feminist movement, you most likely some of the first images that pop up are going to be, you know, young white women who might be burning bras or, you know, carrying signs about the pill or abortion. And, and again, I'm not um, belittling that because those are important uh, demands to have, you know, to be able to space out your children control when you want to have children. Um, but that is half of the story. Um, and so making those autonomous reproductive decisions, part of that includes being able to space out children or bypass them. And another half of that is having them if you want them. Uh, so I guess in it, you know, reproductive justice could be the framework for that, that, you know, if people want to have kids, they should be able to and raise them in safe communities. Um, but um, I think it has more to do with maybe a, a media portrayal or just kind of a common sense assumption about what the feminist movement was about. We think it's about abortion. We think it's about birth control. Uh, but for many other women, it's about not being sterilized by the state while you're in the middle of labor and signing a, you know, a consent form that's in English when you only speak Spanish. But definitely it is all part of autonomy and being able to say, I want to have kids or I don't want to. It's interesting, this forced sterilization that's going on during this time. I, um, thinking about, you started by talking about the context of the Cold War and this contrast with communism. And um, I was actually in psychology the other day teaching kids about, the, about eugenics and the eugenics movement in the United States and how it was sort of, and, and Britain and how it kind of preceded um, Nazi Germany and all these other things. And I'm wondering, kids make connections, you know, especially if you're teaching this chronologically, mm -hmm. um, you know, you just finished talking about how the Nazis are, you know, sterilizing people, aborting babies and, and killing people that are, um, you know, not desirable or whatever their definition was. Um, and, you know, a student in class the other day couldn't help but say, but people abort, you know, babies with Down syndrome today and things like that. And I, I was like, you're right, they do. But that's their choice, not the government right. telling them to do right. that. Um, I'm just curious, maybe talk a little bit about um, abortion in that in that context, you know, because I think kids will make that comparison and, and maybe what's different about about the movement in the 60s and 50s. So I think you're right that part of it is about choice. I was reading an article not too long ago and I forget, I forget which country it is. Uh, it might've been Sweden or, or Norway or Iceland. It was one of these kind of Northern European countries, uh, but they were talking about how, um, I think it was 98% of the women who do genetic testing who find out that they have Down syndrome decide to have an abortion. And so in this country, uh, it's increasingly rare to find people who have Down syndrome because people are having these elective abortions. And so then it, it did raise all of these ethical questions about is, is this like some type of genocide? Is this, um, you know, we know that people with Down syndrome can live long and healthy lives. 
and that they can live normal lives or, you know, normal, however you want to define that they're capable to live independently um, if they, they want to. And so how do we kind of justify this or the persistence of this? And so I think part of it is maybe the, the cultural values that we place on quote unquote normalcy. And if people have certain options available to them, are they maybe pressured by society to, to make certain decisions? I don't know if that's the right answer for this particular case. I know within the United States, I think some of the certain states are trying to pass laws to make it difficult to have abortions just based on things like the sex of the fetus or whether or not it has a chromosomal anomaly. But it is a fine line to tiptoe. Um, you know, most abortions that take place, take place within the first 12 weeks. Uh, it's north of 90% of abortions take place in the first 12 weeks. So that's before we do things like genetic testing on fetuses. So when we're talking about people who have abortions based on a genetic test, we're talking about a small percent of the abortions that are actually taking place. Um, and so most people who are having abortions are having abortions because they don't want a child, not necessarily that they don't want a child with Down syndrome or, or X, Y, or Z. Um, it's because they, it's not in their moment. That's not their plan part of it. So when we're focusing on these other things, we're, we're just focusing on a really small percentage of the actual abortions that are taking place. And it's difficult because we're looking at individual families. We're looking at individual women who are making decisions based on what they know and what they think they're capable of. So, you know, it, it is a matter of, of choice um, and, and individual decision-making. Uh, this is not a, a federal program from the state saying you have bad genes, so I'm going to cut off your, your family line from ever reproducing ever again. Um, that is obviously the, the biggest thing that's at play here. Um, but again, you know, 90% of abortions are taking place before there is even any kind of genetic testing that is being done. So um, I think it's important to kind of keep that perspective as well, that for most of these people, they don't know if there, there is something going on. That's nice to know. Um, it's good data. Cause I think that's a genuine worry of people that are inclined to be, you know, anti-abortion pro-life or whatever, um, that it's some sort of, you know, genocide or something like that. And right No, it, it is over 90% of abortions take place within the first 12 weeks, over 90%, that means they're the medicated abortions, you don't even have an actual surgery for it. Um, you have maybe between six and 8% of abortions that happen in the second trimester. And it's less than two to 3% that happen even later than that. And when we are looking at abortions that are in the second and third trimester, overwhelmingly, we are looking at people who wanted to have children and then they did a genetic testing and realized that there was something uh, potentially at issue with the fetus. Um, these are people who were planning to carry that child to term, um, but who have made a difficult decision to 
have an abortion later. Now, granted, this statistic can change if we start, you know, taking into consideration um, some of the other restrictive measures that states are doing to prevent abortions from happening in the first 12 weeks. And then that's something that, you know, this, my statistics might change, you know, once we kind of take some of those factors into consideration, but in states where women do have access, you know, relatively easy access to abortion, the first 12 weeks, by and large, over 90% of them do in the first 12. It's awesome that you have that data that you can just rattle it off. That's amazing. (laughs) For lesson plan ideas and how to teach women's history, go to our website, www.remedialhistory.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook. If you think what we're doing is needed, please consider joining our Patreon community. Through Patreon, you can sponsor a podcast with a small donation. Patrons get access to behind-the-scenes information, gear, and bonus episodes. But more importantly, patrons are putting their money where their mouth is and making a financial commitment to getting women's history into the K-12 curriculum. We are so grateful to our patrons who sponsored this episode. Our history makers, Jeffrey. Our history heroes, Brooke and Barbara. Our historians, Jamie and Kent. And our allies, Nicole, Mark, Sarah, Leah, Thank you. You guys make this show possible. So feminists in the 1960s, you know, they are part of this this larger civil, civil rights movement because they are linking reproductive choice and freedom to social and political inequalities that if you are a, a young woman at this time, Uh, If you're an unwed woman at this time and you have a child, right, your opportunities then for the future, for your, you know, marriage prospects, all of these things are tied to um, this, your your reproduction being virginal or, or whatever. And so because of existing social structures and idealized gender roles, you know, you have women who are economically dependent on their husbands. And if they can control their own reproduction, then they have a certain measure of freedom to do other things. Maybe they want to go to college. Maybe they want to pursue an, uh, maybe they want to pursue a career um, or maybe they are fine with being a housewife and they just want to space out their children at desirable intervals so that they can keep up with their kids um, or maybe not be pregnant every single year. So it's really this, this notion of giving women the choice to say, okay, I'm done having kids, um, or I don't want to have kids at all. That for some people was a bit problematic that if you are freeing women of potentially the consequences of their actions, then it gives them license to, to do whatever. So not surprisingly, this results in backlash. Um, Women are just trying to have full control over themselves and their bodies and their futures. But you have critics who are saying that, you know, women want access to birth control because they want to sleep around like men do, or they want to challenge the sexual double standard, or they want to be promiscuous or be able to have illicit affairs while they're married and not have any kinds of repercussions from that. Uh, You have 
religious people who, who challenge this by saying, you know, a woman's role is to have a family, to have children, um, or even other people who say that women are anti-feminist if they want birth control because they don't actually know what they want. Uh, a lot of these arguments aren't new. They get recycled and reused repeatedly, even to this day. But it's just this idea that you are separating sex from, from procreation. And that is potentially problematic if you are trying to control women or their behaviors uh, with fear of procreation, that you know, their sin would be found out if, if they had a child and then they couldn't hide that from the rest of the world. And, and contraceptive helps you to do that. So all of this is possible. These discussions are possible um, simply because birth control does exist at this time. It's just really difficult to come by. Uh, and for most of American history, birth control was illegal. Uh, we start to see birth control devices kind of appear more in the 19th century. I don't know if you've ever actually Googled like an image search of any of these like birth control devices from the 19th century. They are terrifying. <laughs> they look absolutely terrifying. I don't know how to even describe it. It's like an, an IUD looking thing. And, and it has, it almost looks like something you'd put in your sink to like stop it but it goes in your uterus <laughs> and, and they, they're really scary looking. They, I mean, these devices exist. We don't really have a pill until the 20th century, but in the 19th century, there are these different, you know, devices that are there. There's condoms, there's reusable condoms. So they are really just preventing procreation. They're not protecting you know, one person from disease, they're, they're protecting one person and then they're not protecting another person. Um, Have you ever seen the P the um, BBC show Victoria? No. Okay, so it's a whole series on Queen Victoria's like reign or whatever. But what cracks me up is, you know, like this is the wealthiest woman in the world. She has access to the best doctors, the best medical knowledge, like, you know, what she knows is the best of the best for the time period. And they have this scene where she is trying not to get pregnant for a second time. Uh -huh. And she's like in, so they just had sex and she's like in the other room, jumping up and down. <laughs> and like, it's just like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. But it was a really fascinating window into the, into the 19th century. <laughs> And it's all like old wives tales and, and things like that. Like we, I mean, medicine has progressed so, so far <laughs> to this day, but, uh, but yeah, it, you know, you have these draconian looking devices um, that people are using to not get pregnant and, you know, how effective they are is, you know, neither here nor there. I mean, they exist and it's, basically the cutting edge of science at this time. So these devices exist. Now, if you are a single woman who is trying to procure one of these devices to not get pregnant, then you may as well just like carry a scarlet letter and wear that on you because the assumption is if you are single, you do not need these. You should not need them. The assumption then is that you're a sex worker if you need birth control and you're unmarried. You're supposed to be virgins until you're married. And then once you get married, you're supposed to have children. So it's really this kind of 
hush hush thing because the assumption is that single women or any woman really who needs some kind of device is a sex worker. There are legal ways to access this that are kind of more of the, the above the board. Um, so like you could go to your physician and maybe say, you know, I don't want to have any more children. My husband and I don't want to have any more children. Is there something that can be done? But if your physician is conservative and physician, your physician believes that women should be brood animals, then your doctor may not give you that prescription. It's really up to the individual physician and what they are okay with to determine whether or not you get this, this prescription. If you bought it from some kind of mail order service or pharmacy, then it could potentially be confiscated under the Comstock Act um, because it was under the Comstock Act, it was illegal to mail information about abortions or contraceptive devices or the devices themselves. So what this really means is that any of these advancements in reproductive technology and contraceptives, they're not benefiting people because of these devices being taboo, you know, subject to physician approval. And you have individual states that are restricting access to contraceptives and abortion as well. So like Connecticut, for example, they had a law that was from 1879. And it basically said that any person who uses any kind of medical instrument or drug to prevent conception is going to be fined and they could be imprisoned for like two months. So all of these things are really designed to make reproductive control difficult. One of the first people who becomes really involved in trying to spread awareness and access to contraceptive devices is Margaret Sanger. And she founded what would eventually become Planned Parenthood. As innovative and as active as, as she was in, in trying to spread this, she had a pretty moderate stance on things like abortion. Like she didn't even try to associate or align herself with anything in abortion. Um, she tried to say, look, if we just have better access to contraceptives, then we may not ever have abortions ever again. So she really did try to distance herself from appearing like she was pro-abortion. She was actually really trying to make her work legitimate by working with physicians, trying to get physicians to prescribe these devices. Um, but she was constantly embroiled in legal trouble. She was repeatedly uh, arrested for violating the Comstock Act. And so basically just throughout the 19th and 20th century, you have this different patchwork of laws in states that are determining the legal or illegal status of birth control. There's no kind of consensus or anything. So it's not until we get to the 1960s that we actually have a US Supreme Court case, Griswold versus Connecticut, where it actually opens the door for legal access to contraceptive devices for married couples, only married couples, not, not single people. Going back to um, that, that Connecticut law I just mentioned, I mentioned that one specifically because that's what this Supreme Court case was challenging. But Estelle Griswold, she was a director of Planned Parenthood and she and one of her associates, a physician, they were arrested for providing contraceptives to people. They were found guilty. And this case was decided in 1965 with a 7-2 majority. The court ruled that Connecticut's ban on contraceptive devices violated couple, married couples' rights to privacy. And so 
it could not be enforced against married couples. That married couples, even though there's no privacy listed in the Bill of Rights or anything like that, uh, one of the Supreme Court justices, William O. Douglas, he argued that the Bill of Rights created shadows uh, or penumbras, and that privacy could be found in those shadows in the first, third, fifth, ninth, and 14th amendments, that they created basically an environment where there could be these protections for privacy, even though privacy was not explicitly listed. So with uh, Griswold versus Connecticut, 1965, we finally, for the first time, get legal access to contraceptives, but only for married couples. So it's still operating within this confines of uh, a certain moral standard uh, or assumption that only married people should be having sex. It's not until 1972 that that access to contraceptive devices is actually extended to include unmarried persons as well. And that's with the uh, Supreme Court case Eisenstadt v. Baird. In the Eisenstadt case, you know, seven years later, the Supreme Court just basically said that the government couldn't justify only giving contraceptives to married people and, and rejecting it for married people because the individual, whether married or single, whatever, um, they should be protected from government intrusion into something that was so intimate as this, which is really interesting considering everything that we see now with uh, trying to chip away access to, to abortion, that the, you know, Justice Brennan is basically saying that we shouldn't have government intrusion into this really intimate matter. You know, people love to quote Susan B. Anthony and her like anti-abortion comments that she's made, but I really appreciate how you are going through and putting it in the context of their, like, like of course abortion is a horrible last choice. There were no options in her time. And so, you know, like, you know, she, I think she said at one point, um, women wouldn't need abortion if they had the vote. And I think Margaret Sanger is sort of like, well, if they had contraceptives, <laughs> you know, like, like sort of, it's like all these layers of trying to fix this. Right. It's not, again, this is, these are the shades of gray. It is not just black and white. Like I want a kid or I don't. It's what is this going to mean for my future? What is this going to mean for my prospects? If you're an unmarried woman and suddenly you're pregnant or with child, then that means you're probably not going to find someone who's going to marry you that you can be economically, you know, dependent upon because those are your options in the 19th century. These are all the gray things. And, and it, what you're right, it was, um, I think Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, they both tried to not appear so radical um, because they wanted support from other people. They wanted to be able to say, look, this isn't an abortion thing. Like we're, we want the right to vote. That if women could kind of be able to uh, get divorces or um, if they had the vote, then they won't need abortions quite as much. But they, you're correct in that they're linking it to all of these other, you know, social things that are kind of framing their existence and their opportunities at this time. We might today think of abortion as kind of falling into this continuum of, of contraceptive options, right? That maybe you have like the condom and the pill and then like at the other end of it, it's abortion over there. And for a lot of women in, in American history, abortion does kind of fall within that. But the law has always treated abortion and birth differently and birth control, sorry, abortion and birth control differently. 
that while there were some instances in which, you know, contraceptives could legally be done. I mean, the same is kind of true for abortion, the sense that they were illegal unless a physician said it was necessary in order to save your life. So every state in the United States ends up drafting laws that are against abortion between the 1840s and the 1880s. By 1880, every state in the U.S. has a law that prohibits abortion unless um, a physician specifically believed that performing an abortion would save a woman's life. It's kind of weird to think of now, but uh, through the 1930s, abortion was safer than childbirth from the middle of the 19th century all the way until the 1930s. It's around the 1930s when childbirth actually starts moving into the hospital almost exclusively. Before this, it was uh, usually something done at home. But by the 1930s, you have more physicians who are performing um, childbirth delivery. Most of those things are taking place in the hospital. And it's only when that happens that we actually see kind of the mortality rate for childbirth decline to a level that made it actually safer. So for most of American history, it was safer to have an abortion than it was to actually have a child. So we have all of these laws against abortion through the 1880s, that's when they're all developed, but it's also unevenly enforced. Um, most lawmakers kind of had this hands-off approach. Well, if a physician is willing to, to do the procedure, um, if they feel like it's necessary, then we'll let the physician do that and we'll just kind of stay off. You know, the law is as it's written. But we start to see some challenges to that, um, potentially distrust against physicians, potentially, you know, physicians who are kind of just performing the procedure um, under more generous guidelines than, than previously, um, to the point that by the 1940s and 1950s, it actually becomes really difficult for women to be able to get an abortion. You used to just say, you know, you used to just go to your physician and if your physician said, okay, like this isn't safe, we're going to have an abortion. But that was it. It just went to you and your physician and that was basically it. Uh, by the time we get to the 40s and 50s, it's no longer in your physician's control. Your physician who has, you know, um, hospital privileges, they actually have to kind of present your case before a committee and that committee determines whether your condition warrants an abortion. Um, so you have these therapeutic abortion committees that emerge um, in all of these different states, some as early as the 30s, but really we see them more in the 40s and the 50s. So it's now this committee of people who's never even met you, who's never treated you, who are the ones who are determining whether or not you can access this procedure. It's no longer you and your physician. You can't like wink at your physician anymore and then they'll just do it for you. Uh, it has to kind of go through this bureaucratic process to make it legal. And anything outside of that process is an illegal abortion and your physician could be penalized. Potentially you could be too, but it was really unlikely. Most likely they would just coerce uh, women to testify against someone. It's no longer as much in your control as it previously had been. It's all of these other people who were kind of making that decision. Were the committees people, other physicians, like, mm -hmm. was it a, okay, 
not just yeah, like, like some, you know, you can get your priest on the committee or something. Right? You no, know, uh, <laughs> usually, um, I believe the requirement was usually like one surgeon, one physician, and maybe like someone who studied psychology it was usually like the bare minimum. Um, but it was uh, your, your local hospital where you would have had the procedure if it was approved. So it was people who had privileges at that hospital who on, on a rotation made up that committee. Uh, there's usually a surgeon, a physician, and, and someone else, usually psychology. It's no longer in your hands if you want an abortion. So for some women who had the financial means, then that just opened the door for them to go somewhere else for the procedure. It was legal in Sweden. It was legal in Japan. Uh, it was like a wink in Mexico. It was illegal in Mexico, but if it's close enough and if you had enough money, then you can kind of just do whatever you want. Or you do it yourself or you get it done illegally here. I think it's important to mention that not all illegal abortions were fatal. That there are some, there's this very kind of negative connotation of an illegal abortion. And some of them could be done well. Some of them could be done hygienically. But when we're looking at a black market, then there, that means there's also no protections for women against the people who are really bad. So you don't necessarily get quality. You don't necessarily get dignified healthcare from a medical professional. You may not get hygienic treatment. You may not be able to trust your provider. There are even instances where women are, are basically sexually assaulted as payment for their illegal abortion. Those are the worst of the worst. There are people who do this procedure and who can do it professionally, but then the onus is on you to make sure that you've done the research to find a quality hygienic provider. There's no oversight. There's nowhere you can report this or anything like that. So Brooke, we're going to pause there. Alicia is talking about all of these uh, fatal abortions and the unhygienic and really horrible conditions oh that gosh. this is happening yeah. in. And next week, we are going to share part two of my interview with everybody. And um, in part two, Alicia is going to talk about a woman named Jerry Santoro, whose death is uh, highly publicized and is really the catalyst for mm. making people aware and starting to get momentum behind something like Roe v. Wade. That's amazing. Yeah. Awesome. So we'll see everybody next week. Yeah, part two. Come back. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.